listening to the Rent Roll Radio Show with Sterling Chapman. Hey, Rent Roll Radio listeners, welcome back to the show. Today we have a special guest, Charles Lamar. Charles, thanks for joining us. Well, hello. How are you? Doing good. Thanks for coming on today. So Charles is actually a passive investor. You know, so often on the show, we interview all of these operators and, and you know, wheelers and dealers and people who are out there getting their hands dirty in the real estate investing world. But that doesn't really make up the vast majority of people that are benefiting from investing in real estate. So we wanted to get one of our passive investors on to kind of tell us how things look from the other side of the table. So Charles, can you kick it off by kind of telling us your backstory, what you did before you got into real estate investing, how you got in and how it evolved? Sure. Okay. The history. I am an engineer. No one ever offered to give me a Nobel prize. So let's say that I was overpaid programmer more than anything else. I worked for uh, Texas Instruments for the last 20 years. I retired. So you, made, you made the calculators. No, no, no. That's a different group. I was actually in integrated circuits and this is going to be real dumb sounding, but if you think about transistors, if you talk about high voltages or high currents or something like that, you need certain shapes. And so my job was to program these little shapes so that when you place these things, when the engineers who were building layouts for the chips would place these in their design, they could say, oh, make it bigger, stretch it this way, stretch it that way, add this particular segment like a ring around it or something like that. All these things that would put everybody to sleep. So essentially my job was to use high school geometry and I got paid really well for it. Nice. But I did retire in 2018, June of 18. I hit 65, so it's not like it's a big surprise. In 2010, I had never thought about doing anything in real estate before this. My wife had tried to be a realtor for a while and she decided that she didn't really enjoy cold calling and she didn't enjoy working on weekends, so that wasn't going to go very far. But we had heard about this thing called, it was named Lifestyles, and she hauled me down there, kicking and screaming the whole way. So we went in there and we actually left once and then came back and tried it again. But we went for the, the weekend thing that they have and they presented single family. And I said, there's really no interest in single family for me. I don't want to do that. I want to deal with people at that level. You know, you're always chasing things like that. I'm, I'm not that hands on. And then they did the multifamily on Sunday morning because it was a weekend class. And I went, I like that. I can understand that math. This works for me. You know, this all makes sense to me. And I started studying it. You know, we jumped on board, watched all the videos from that group. The fellow who presented it, and he's turned out to be our mentor and still is, a guy named Brad Sumrock, he split off from there and we followed him like, you know, white on rice following this guy. And we joined his group and have been with him ever since. But to date, I've gotten into 50, my wife and I, to be correct, have gotten into 50 deals. And 16 of those have sold during the uh, last 10 years. And there's a ramp up. You don't buy them all at once. We've made a fair amount of money and gotten really involved in it. I like to say that I'm sort of an active passive. And by that, I'm not a manager of any sort. But I watch very carefully what goes on. I got all sorts of horror stories on what goes on. But anyway, you know, you, you get into the first deal and you, you work your way through it. And, you know, there's a horror story in there if you're ready for it or when you want it or whatever. Started doing deal after deal, and I guess I'm well thought of in our group because they keep letting me into deals, even though I sometimes whack the sponsors a little bit on these things, but they <laughs> like it. Well, good deal. So what was the initial place you went? You called it Lifestyles? There's a fellow out of Houston, Texas, Dale Wamsley. 30-something years ago, he started this group called Lifestyles. He's actually a, a fellow who ran health clubs, you know, weightlifting and stuff like that. 
And so he's entrepreneurial at the wazoo. And according to him on his story, because he has many, many radio shows, he had a guy in his place who always looked tan and always looked healthy and never looked stressed. He said, what do you do? He said, real estate. He said, all right. And he started following that. So ultimately he expanded it into this training session for people doing single family. And as the multifamily became somewhat available over time, it has evolved because of the loans and things becoming more common. And, you know, there's a sort of a history behind it. He started pushing that one too, and he's been training people how to do it. There are people out there that you invest your money, perhaps in small amounts, perhaps in large amounts, and they get rich. You do okay. But in, in my world, what I really like, especially under Brad, he trains people to become the wealthy people because he trains the people to be those sponsors. Sponsors do you know better than I do, but I don't have any angst about that. They do the work and I don't. But they need money. Think of them as the sharks. They're out looking for the meat. I'm the meat. So I invest my money. They put it into these deals. They do well. You know, you want to have a good sponsor. Bad sponsor is bad. Good sponsor is good. That's sort of, you know, rule of thumb there. And so once they earn money, I start making money and I'm pretty happy about the whole thing. Awesome. So I've heard about, I've heard of Brad. I've never been to any of his courses, but I'm going to look into it because I'm I'm glad to hear the you know, the positive feedback. You hear a lot about the different educational pieces out there where they're, where they're educating operators, but it sounds like you've got the education as a passive investor and he's kind of mentored you on the passive side. So can you elaborate on that a little bit? The process of finding a place, buying a place, operating a place and selling a place is the same, whether you're a passive or a sponsor. It's just what you do during those steps. You know, I personally choose to be in the very hazardous position of going out to my mailbox and taking out those envelopes and, and, and you know, trying to avoid paper cuts as I open them and then take those checks to the bank. You know, those other guys, they don't really do any work. They just operate the properties. They don't take in those hazards of paper cuts like I do. That's, of course, you know, my, my attempt at humor. you got to smile a little bit here. Come on. Anyway, I dive in with both feet. I am an engineer. I like numbers. And so when it comes to the training, I do all the training. So, you know, I could underwrite a place if I, if I wanted to or if I had to. I don't do it very often, and I don't really enjoy jumping on that. I don't go look for properties. I look for leads. So when a guy's in our uh, group, and he, one of Brad's features is he has a very large network of people you pay money, Brad, is not a charity by any stretch of the imagination. So, you know, you got to work that out. But, you know, we have a very large group of people, some of which are trying to be sponsors, some of which are, are trying to be passives. And there are a few of those people that sit there and don't do anything. But, you know, it's like that gym thing. If you don't, gym, it doesn't help you. You know, you got to lift the weights if you want to get any good out of it. So I am a strong believer in understanding how it works. You know, there's two levels to get into this stuff. One is accreditation. If you're accredited, you're wealthy, rich, whatever you want to call it. There are numbers associated with that. You can look them up. Or if you're sophisticated, you're knowledgeable. So what I've always found unusual, for those listeners that don't know, the, what makes an accredited investor accredited is they either have a $1 million net worth excluding the equity in their personal residence, or they make $200,000 a year personally or $300,000 a year as a married couple. But what I don't understand about that is how they could blanket that across the entire country because making $200,000 a year in Birmingham, Alabama is way different than making $200,000 a year in San Francisco. Yeah, but we all pay taxes to the same IRS. 
So think of it this way. The government protects the stupid, them that aren't sophisticated, and the poor, them that are not accredited. And so if you're accredited, rich, or if you're sophisticated, smart, they will not protect you or keep you out of these things. They will allow you to lose your money. Fortunately, I try not to lose my money, but it's always better to be smarter about how all the deals work, you know, understanding how they're going to pay me, understanding that they're going to take a cut. Some of them take an acquisition fee. I prefer not to do an acquisition fee if I can get away with it. Some of them will take a disposition fee. I've not yet been in a deal that does that. Some people talk about waterfall compensation to the sponsors and understanding what those terms mean is a good thing. So understanding how the deals work, what you're going to pay per unit, how much you can throw off per unit, how much you expect to pay for insurance per unit, understanding those kinds of things lets me look at the deal and then I can say, yeah, I'll get into that. But before I look at the deal, I'm going to look at the sponsor. And I have an example. He's a, a friend of mine. He turned out to be a banker type guy. And I'm thinking, okay, this fellow has some financial acumen. He understands the numbers. And so I kept him on my little short list of when he gets a deal. And he ultimately got a deal. It's south. I live in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. It's south of here. In any case, he got a deal. And I said, okay. And I looked over the deal. The numbers all seemed to work. And I said, sure, I'm in. So I threw in some money and we're off to the races. And he's been paying me pretty well. Now, we are during, uh, wait a minute, let's see. This is June 19th. Happy Juneteenth for those. And, you know, we're in the middle of the beer virus, or hopefully we're at the end of the beer virus problem. And so they have not been distributing any money as of late. You know, distribution stopped in February. And so I feel that we have been collecting fairly well, and there'll be some pent-up disbursements coming out pretty soon. And so I'm looking forward to that. But as a rule, I never try to eat the money that is distributed. The money that comes out in distribution should be considered vacation money because it doesn't always come on time. And I got a couple examples of that one. The one I like to go to is I've got a property up I. I am invested in a property. So always <laughs> interpret it that way when I say I have. Uh, I'm invested in a property up in uh, Columbus, Ohio, multiple buildings, call it 100 units. I don't remember how many, but I've got a small part of that thing. But we had two clowns in two days run into two of the buildings in their cars and drive off. So we got stuck with the fixing of those things. And so clearly we weren't going to get a big distribution that quarter because we had to fix those buildings and pay what would have been the deductible. You know, you don't hold a $300 deductible on a building that's, you know, $10 million. So by and large, you know, we, we ended up forking that money out of our pockets. Not a problem. That's the way it works. If a $30,000 boiler blows up, you're not going to see a distribution that quarter. So don't plan on eating this money plan on this money coming in for your vacations and whatnot until you get really, really good at it kind of thing. People talk about how much they make. Can I make 10000 a month? Well, I've yet to have a month that I've made 10000 but I have had a couple of months that I've made, let's see, uh, in January, I made 340000 So that covers me for several months. Right. So it's not like I make 10000 a month, but I do have enough that comes in that I am well over 10000 a month. But that's specific. Sorry, shouldn't say that. Uh, when you talk about the distributions, I think everybody, by now everybody listening to this show should kind of understand the, the syndication model and how the, the cash flow distributions are and how, you know, at the end you get a larger distribution at the disposition. What is your minimum investing criteria when you're looking at operators and individual deals? Do you look at average annual return? Do you look at IRR? Do you have a floor for those? Can you elaborate on that evaluation process? Sure. Well, 
most of the deals, well, let me go back to the beginning and then time has changed. When I started, the normal sales pitch was double your money in three to five years. That meant if I put in a hundred, I would get back my hundred plus another hundred in that period of time. Some of that would come out over distributions. Some of that would come out at the end when we sold the place. Now in this day and age, well, let's say last year, 2019, because nothing's going on this year so far anyway, you would talk about getting probably 75% returns total. So you would see, you know, put in 100, you'd see a total of about 75 coming back. Well, I can't demand 100 if they're not going to give me 100. So I have to sort of take what they can get. When they get down to probably 50 over a three to five year period, then I'm going to say the stock market beats them hand down on average. But right now, apartments are still winning. So I still keep a good portion of the money in apartments. So it's really a, a fluid thing. I'm a guy who has a few bucks and I'm going to put them where they pay me the better deal. So it isn't that I can demand a deal. I'm going to look at the deals as they come in. And if they're good enough, I'll get into them. You know, But that also says there's a lead on the deal that I like. The deal makes sense. They've got an exit plan that makes sense. I mean, there's a lot of things that going into looking at what they're saying they're going to do. If they say, I'm going to double my rent in the first year, I'm going to say, mm, that ain't going to happen. You know, if I'm going to cut my expenses to the bare bone, I'm thinking that's not a good idea. So there's a lot of things that will disqualify a deal. Right now, the IRRs are talking around 15%. You know, I'd like to have a little bit higher than that. When they were talking a little bit higher, like double your money in three to five years, I've got some outrageously high returns. So I figure if I got triple my money back then, and I was supposed to get double, then maybe when I'm supposed to get three quarters, I might get one and a half. It might happen. And so I'm sort of hoping that there'll still be some that re, you know, not all of them, but a few of them will still do better than the average. And of course, you've always got a dog or two because you can't tell in advance which one's going to just hit some wall somewhere where something goes wrong. Yeah, you know, I've got a couple of those. Do you have any particular markets that you gravitate towards? Do you, do you evaluate the market or, or do you kind of leave that up yes. to the operator? I have noticed over the many deals, Dallas-Fort Worth has been the location of all the home runs. Now I have, I guess one needs to say, where am I? I've got a property in Florida. It's up near Jacksonville. I've got a property in Georgia just recently. That one's in Athens. Now, I went to Georgia Tech, so buying something in Athens was pretty painful. And we all know <laughs> there's only two things good coming out of Athens, Georgia. And that's 78 in both directions for my <laughs> University of Georgia friends. There you go. And then, let's see, there's uh, three or four properties in Ohio. There's one in Louisiana. We had one in Oklahoma. Where in Louisiana? Uh, Shreveport. I it's a value play, about 400 units. And we rehab the whole place. It hasn't paid anything yet, but it's a long-term play. So we'll see how it works out. What is your typical horizon? What whole periods do you like? Well, when I started, everything was working three to five years. And I was lucky that I got in then because I've made enough money that I'm pretty much playing on the house, as it were. You know, I have not a lot more left in the, in the deals that I haven't already collected out. So I now am in a position that I can play a little bit higher risks, a little bit longer horizons. The one in Louisiana is a, a longer play. We're rehabbing a whole lot of, of units on that thing. So it is what we call a value play. You buy it at a deep discount. You put a lot of money into the thing to get it up and started. And then you fill it up and hopefully make money, sell it, et cetera. So that one is probably a five to six year one for sure, if not seven. 
And then I've got, I've had one that only lasted 19 months, but it paid an outrageously high return. So, you know, not arguing with that one either, but you can't tell that ahead of time. The only thing you can do is choose to get in. You see the deal, they put out a private placement memorandum, they'll put out the operating agreement, the investor questionnaire. And so what you're going to see is you look over the deal, you should see the pro forma and a lot of other sort of advertisements on what they expect to do. And you look it over and you say, do I believe the guy? You know, is he doing anything really stupid? And then you put your marbles in and see how it works out. But you can't tell ahead of time for sure what's going to happen. It's sort of a track record kind of thing. So do you ever invest with newer operators or do you have? I have invested with first time operators, about 24 or five of them. Now realize that of the 50 deals, there's two or three of them in each deal in cases. So it's not that 25 or half the deals have been first timers. So I, I haven't counted that number. I don't have it off the top of my head. But many, many of the people I've invested with, matter of fact, almost all of the people I've invested with are Brad's students. And therefore, I know who they have as a mentor, and I know what his track record is, and I know who they can run home and ask questions to. So I'm not terribly concerned about their track record. And I know there are very experienced people in the group, and they're very willing to impart information to each other. There's not a lot of cutthroat in our group. You know, if two guys are after the same same property, you know, one guy wants it over the other, but they're not going to kill each other over the thing. It's been very good. So I don't get as concerned about how much their first deal or whatever. I'm looking for the glint in their eye and, you know, what their expectation is. And I want to know what their other experience is. Did they ever run anything? Have they ever had people that they managed and, and things like that? Can they count, you know, and get to the P&L statement, things like that? <laughs> And I want to know their ethics because we get to meet each other, which is also good because there's networking groups. And so instead of, you know, writing to some guy who's in a, in a different city and getting into his deal, I've shaken hands with the guys and I've spent many a lunch with these people that I actually invest with. And I know where most of them live and how many kids they got and things like that. So it is a much more close relationship that I tend to rely on. So what advice would you have for, for anybody in your previous position that, you know, is maybe considering getting into it, how would you direct them? Well, if they live in Dallas-Fort Worth, let me start it that way. Dallas-Fort Worth has been the hotbed of this stuff. I was hugely lucky that I moved here from, like I said, Georgia and and also Tennessee. And I happened to come here and I lived for 20-something years and then I did this. And this just happened to be the right place to be. It worked out wonderfully. We have meetups all over the place. So, Look for a meetup wherever you are. Now, that's not going to be as easy if you're in New York City because there's not as many local operators inside New York City or California. Actually, there may be in California. They're pretty much a hotbed out there, too, but they don't do it locally. They all go out of state because it's crazy to do it in a state like California. But there's, I don't know, Minot, North Dakota might not be the the (laughs) hot spot for finding a, uh, a meetup group in that area. There are books to read. There's podcasts. Clearly, this is a podcast or what you're going to turn it into. But there's all manner of those kinds of things. But finding a place where you can actually meet, greet, talk to, shake hands, ask questions is a huge benefit. Bigger pockets is a really nice thing. And I have not invested with a guy named Joe Fairless. It's Ashcroft. He has written a wonderful book. Read it. You know, that one gets you all the way through. He's going to pull out the book. I got mine too. It's in the other room. Yeah, um, I, think, I think I gave it to somebody the other day. I actually okay. started this podcast after reading that book. Okay. <laughs> I was on Joe's podcast and I went to his uh, conference earlier this year in Keystone. Okay. 
it is what I think the nuts and bolts Bible on how to do this. Before you read that one, there's a there's a guy who wrote a book, Paul Moore. It's the perfect investment, super good intro to this stuff. So I love Paul. A little caveat on Paul Moore. I, I read The Perfect Investment. And when I first started this podcast, I interviewed like three or four of my buddies in here in Baton Rouge that had been small time investing. And then I got an email from this website called podcastguest.com. They were saying, hey, there's these guests out there that would love to be on your show. And you can search by category. So I went into real estate and I saw a bunch of people I didn't recognize and I saw Paul's name. And I was like, oh man, I read his book and I watch his webinars on Bigger Pockets all the time. Like Paul's great this would be awesome. It was kind of a Hail Mary. I sent him an email thinking, oh, that would be neat if he agreed to be on my show. He replied back immediately and he said, I'd love to be on your show. And he did my show. And then after he did my show, he referred me to, I mean, two handfuls of other great investors. So I attribute the majority of the success of this podcast to Paul Moore getting me started. So that's that's my Paul plug for the day. I read his book and I thought it was just marvelous for the beginner. I mean, it's not as deep as a lot of other ones, but it tells you, you know, what the, the overall strategy is and how it works and what you can do in the thing. I love that one. There's another book. I'm not as, not as big a fan of that book, but if a guy's a doctor and, you know, if I run into someone on bigger pockets, who's a doctor wondering what he should do, I'll point him toward uh, Thomas Black's. It's something like the passive income physician, I think is the name of the thing. You know, met the guy once. He's he's an interesting fellow. He happened to be here in Dallas, Fort Worth, and he was up in, I believe it was Oklahoma City. It might have been Tulsa. So he bounced around sort of in this area, but it seems to work well with the doctor group that, oh, you know, I am going through these problems at my work, and I'd like to get out of this stuff or have at least a backup plan. So it's topically good for the doctor, I think. So anyway, but there's books to be read. It is a good thing. Now, as for a mentor, you know, I love my mentor. I don't know that he is better or worse than anybody else because I've only been to one. I remember taking my kids to college and every one of those kids, you know, the, the students that would walk you around, this is the best college. And I always think to myself, how the devil would you know? Because <laughs> you've only been to this one. So, you know, I'm going to be straightforward. I have been mostly to, well, I, I did do the uh, lifestyles. And at the time, bread was a much better choice, but I'm not going to badmouth lifestyles because they were good in many ways. But Brad was better. But, you know, there's a ton of them out there. But they all charge you money. None of them are charities, so to speak. So, you know, you got to do a little cost-benefit analysis in your mind and see see if it's really worthwhile to get a mentor. You know, if you're only going to put it in. A little real estate education life hack that I've come across is uh, start a podcast because all these guys that charge three grand an hour for advice will talk to you for free if you have a podcast. (laughs) There you go. Now, you know, some of them, they will invite you to their meeting because they're trying to get money out of you into their deal. Some of them will invite you to their meeting because they want to sell you books, tapes, and videos or whatever else is is online today or something. And then some of them want to invite you because they want you to get into their network. Brad is of the last group. He's the network kind of guy. And so you, you were essentially a member for a year, but it gets you a handshake with all manner of people who are doing sponsors. Last year, I can't say the other guys are doing something different, but our, we had 58 different deals that came through. I must have seen 90 because I see ones from outside too, but I was getting a deal a week and, you know, and there are certain weeks you don't get one and certain weeks you see three or four. So it's just amazing 
the deal flow and how many you could get into if you wanted to. And, and there were some really good ones in there. And there were a few that I thought were a little doggy that I didn't, I certainly didn't want to get into, but I've probably missed, missed a couple of good ones too. But in any case, there was a lot of, a lot of activity that one could do now this year. Well, I can't say quite the same thing yet this year, beer virus <laughs> on top of that. What can I say? So, what advice, and I already asked your advice for the passive investor that's looking to get started, what advice do you have maybe for the operator that is trying to attract passive investors like yourself? Well, I hate to sound like the negative flamethrower here, but on bigger pockets, I will often see somebody who doesn't seem to be bringing much to the party. And so I'm saying, don't do this. But they're like, I would like to be a sponsor and, and start a syndication and I don't really have any money right now and I don't know anything and I've never done it before, but I want to do this. And I'm thinking, you know, maybe you probably ought to do a little research and figure out how it works. So my two cents is in my case, I see the network and it's wonderful, but you know, not everybody has access to that. So you're going to have to read that book. You know, if you're trying to get some money from the outside, a rich relative to start with, start with a small place and prove that it works, get into a syndication or two as a passive. And if you can talk them into letting you be the KP on the deal, key principle, that means you sign the note, there's risk, there's work. And, you know, depending on what you bring to the party, you may or may not get any remuneration out of it, but you will possibly get something else, but force them to tell you how it works. So you see how things are going you know, maybe you do a little slave labor for them when you're a KP. And, you know, you're going to have to discuss that with them ahead of time because a lot of people ignore their KPs completely once they've done it. But anyway, try and get some experience so you've got some sort of resume to talk about on this thing. I guess you start out in houses. Like I said earlier, I never touched a single family home other than what I live in. You know, I just walked in, you know, and had a, a big wad of cash and dumped in these things kind of thing. Because <laughs> it made sense. But not everybody can start there. You know, I was 57 when I did it, and I'm 67 now, so I'm a little late starter when it really comes down to it. Young man like yourself, you got a lot more time than I had to do this. And so you can't assume that you're going to start big right off the bat. I started with a uh, $70,000 rent house. <laughs> yeah, but you just got to keep chiseling on it until you can you parlay whatever you got into a bigger amount. Absolutely. And, and try to do other people's money. But, uh, you know, I see people and, and my comment is, well, if you don't have a rich relative, you're in real trouble, dude. But, you know, <laughs> try, and, try and meet people and discuss it. But you need to have a very large database of people if you're going to try and be a sponsor because you're going to have to hit up a lot of people. And there's the two ways to do it, the two normal ways. There's three or four different ways. But, you know, you got the Reg D506B and the Reg D506C. C says you have to find accredited people. So you better be hanging out in a country club. And although I will say this, most of the people at country club might be in debt rather than in profit. But we <laughs> won't, uh, that millionaire next door kind of concept. But, and if you do the, the B, you got to know them ahead of time. So you better have that huge database. I went to a, a reasonably good high school. And so I keep up with a lot of my friends. Very few of them are doing this. So I can't get <laughs> them up for the money. But I guess if you have a lot of good friends, you know, maybe that's that's where you do it. If you're a banker, you know, you've got a big leg up because you know all these people you've loaned money to in the past. But if you're not, you know, I, I'm not sure where you go and get that money. But that's the big problem is getting the money. Absolutely. Can I tell a can I tell a horror story just for your listeners who are absolutely? Absolutely. I mean, I hate to tell people everything is rosy because it really isn't. Well, 
And we we used to have a section on the show because we we don't want to promote all sunshine and rainbows, but I'd love to hear. Okay, it. let's see. I guess I'll do the first property I get into, and, and this is a fellow. He had done really really well for about eighteen months. Make that fifteen, but I didn't see the signs for three months. So we'll you know it took me eighteen to figure it out. So on December twenty third of that particular year, and it's this has been eight years ago, seven years ago, something like that. I got this letter from the bank that said we were in default. And I said, oh, this is not good. So I called up the sponsor on the deal. In those days, it was one guy, one deal in the early days because it didn't take nearly as much money to take down a property. This was a 160-unit apartment in Irving, Texas. I'm thinking we spent around $6 million for it at the time, if I remember correctly. Anyway, got this letter. So on, I called up the sponsor right away, and he says, don't worry about it. So, well, that ain't going to work. I'm worried about it. So I called up the other guys that were three KPs on the deal, me being one of them. And I called the other two. And one of them said uh, he's under cancer treatments and he wasn't going to do much. The other guy said he was off in Boston working now, so he couldn't do very much. So it fell to me. So I called the bank and talked to this dude. And he didn't believe me or know who I was or believe anything. But I said, we fixed the deal. But I talked to him. Now, about two weeks later, I have to talk to the real lead on the deal. He says, I didn't bother calling the bank. I knew they wouldn't be there that day. You know, and I'm just sitting there in my mind thinking this guy. Well, I ultimately found out that he had been ducking the bank. They had flown to town. Let's see, I got the letter in December. So let's say they flew to town around October is what I think it was. And he, oh, yeah, I'll be there in just a few minutes. Never showed up. So he was ducking them. And that's why we were one of the reasons we were in trouble. He had not been sending them our financials. He had actually changed the software, he and his crew. Now, he was also a property management person and the lead on this deal. He had people working for him in our office, and he had sent them all off to new software school and then pulled them out a couple days early so they didn't really know how to use it all the way through, and they'd screwed it all up. So we were having a heck of a time with our financials, and the bank wasn't getting them. Ultimately, we also, there was a second deal that he was paying more attention to, and he was also screwing that one up, and I was uh, talking to the, the KPs on that one. I was not a KP on the second deal. So we uh, ultimately formed a cabal, a fellow who is a good friend of mine, and I've been in many of his deals up until now. I think it's about 10 of the deals are his. It was his first deal I got into also, by the way, somewhat after I started this deal. I think that was my deal number three. And that one has been a treasure. And if you want a treasure story, I can tell that one too. But in any case, he, this lead, was just losing focus. He couldn't really carry on a conversation and answer questions about the property without just going far afield. He just wasn't, whatever had happened, he wasn't tracking on time. We had had a a hailstorm on the property. This would be property A. And he and his brilliant thought was, we can take that insurance company to the cleaners. And what we'll do is we'll just get a lot more money out of them. Well, that left us in court with them and in lawsuits for about three extra years before we ultimately got paid. Not a good plan. Ask them for what you deserve. Don't ask them for more than what you deserve. You know, there's no need. Ultimately, this other fellow who I had worked with as a, have worked since then, and he's been my lead on many deals. We formed a cabal, got all of the investors together and voted the guy out. About two weeks after we did that, as the guy left, he said a few disparaging remarks, and I'm not on his Christmas card list, as it were. But he said, you know, I'll sue you. And I said, if you'll leave here and go fix the other deal, you'll keep your reputation. Two weeks later, the KPs on that deal called me up and says, Charles, come over here and be our consultant on how do we get him out of this one, too. 
So he was out of both of them. So that was my first deal. And, you know, you might think that's a horror story, but I learned a whole lot. And I read that contract letter to letter all the way through. You know, I understood it. I learned all manner of facets of the business at that point. Now, the other guy who I had formed the cabal with, he took it over. He wrote a book, but didn't mention my name. So I'm not going to mention his name either. <laughs> all right. So there's, there's that one. Now, that particular person, that second deal that we got into, and, and please realize these numbers are from the good, the great times of last decade. I expect us to have good times now, but this is the great times. So, and I don't remember exactly what day we got into this deal. It's up in Wiley, Texas. There's only a few places in Wiley, Texas, so you could probably Google and find out who this dude is, but we won't go there. In any case, we bought a 76-unit apartment up there, and I put in 100000 He paid me, you know, a normal, I don't know, 8 9% return for the first year or two, but at the year two, we did a refi. And he handed me back 76000 So now, in my beady little brain, because I keep capital separate from dividends, I got 33 in the deal. And that's just terrible, you know, 33. And he's paying me 14000 15000 a month, uh, a year, excuse me, a year on this thing. And I'm thinking, hmm, around 40, 45, maybe 50% as it turns out, you know, as it shakes out. I can almost enjoy this. So that lasted for about another five years. Last September, October, I'm going to say September, he hands me a check for $240,000. Now, I don't even know how to do my math. I mean, that's my big <laughs> problem on this. And I still have, we still own the property, and I still have 200 plus thousand of value left in that property right there. So, you know, there's there's been some really, really, and that's not the best deal, by the way. Well, it might be. I have to go recalc. I don't know how to calculate it. But anyway, <laughs> There are several deals that have just been remarkably outstanding, you know, and I've got a dog that I could do. The, uh, the property that the first property I talked about, we ended up making an 18% uh, annualized return on it. So it's real hard for me to be terribly upset because that still beats my bank, but we should have done so much better. You know, it's been a good return. I've enjoyed it. My wife worked for an airline. So what I like to say is I moved from a coach retirement to a first class retirement. <laughs> nice. So the next part of our show, just to kind of help our listeners get to know you a little bit better, it's our radio round. And we just asked you three quick questions. You've mentioned several books on here, but did you have another one that's your favorite book that you would recommend? Oh, on real estate. When you told me this it was just my favorite book, come on, I was going to say Clancy. <laughs> Some people have gone with like a fiction book and I've, uh, I've never corrected them. <laughs> Okay. Well, I, I will say that there's another fellow, Brian Burks, who has written one, The Hands-Off Investor. I'm working my way through this, and I've exchanged emails with him, and I've been on bigger pockets with him, and he gives wonderful answers. I'm about halfway through the book at this point, and it's good, so I'm expecting it to be even greater as I get further along in this book. He, he's really good at this stuff, so I like that one. But I do think as a passive, it's a good idea to read Fairless's book so you know what the heck they're doing to you Absolutely. as well as anything else. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big doubter of things. I never trust anybody up front. In, you know, inspect what you expect. Yeah. Big stick, that kind of thing. Now, okay. <laughs> you said the book. Let's see. There was one. Your favorite quote. Oh, I actually like two of Warren Buffett's. You know, the first is don't lose money is rule one. <laughs> and rule two is don't forget rule one. You know, there's yeah. that. <laughs> And I believe Warren Buffett is also the fellow who said, you can't tell who's swimming naked until the tide goes out. And, and the, the visual there, just I love that one, you know, but that's really more about doing 
you know, uncovered calls and things like that. But, you know, it, it does talk about being in debt sort of thing. Now you take me down to, uh, I really enjoy listening to Dave Ramsey because he's entertaining. I don't follow all of his rules, but I'm older than he is. So I was before Dave Ramsey anyway, but I did follow pretty much what he suggests. And I've run into a couple other guys on podcast or YouTube or whatever you call it. And it's the money guys. I'll give them a, a big shout out because they really give pretty good information and they give you the dang answers. They're not sitting there going and dangling carrots and saying, come in and talk to us. They give you the full story before they, you know, you can deal with them if you want to in person, or they actually do uh, really good vignettes on how to handle money. Not necessarily real estate, but that's a neater thing. Favorite thing to do outside of work? Well, that's always a hard one. Last year we drove Route 66 and I actually drove across the country three times because we, we were then retired. We were having some fun and I got within um, rock throwing distance of both oceans three times. So, you know, oh, wow. I put in some miles. So, you know, just taking trips like that. The year before that, I believe that was our year to go to France. So travel is a good one. This year, travel's been sort of a little slower. We were going to take a boat <laughs> out, out of Southampton and go down to France along the uh, western coast of France. And dang, if some old virus thing hasn't stopped that trip. <laughs> yeah. So I, I lived that trip in uh, virtualness or something like that. And so every day I would think about, well, this is what I almost got to see today. They're doing the Boston Marathon virtually this year. Can you imagine? Yeah, I run that I'll text you when I'm done. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so where can our listeners find out more about you or get in touch with you? I guess email's the easiest way to do it. I don't mind putting my email out there. Do I have something I can say? Anyway, C. Lemaire, Charlie Lima, Echo, Mike, Alpha, India, Romeo, Echo, 8444 at gmail.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Charles. I really appreciated it. And I'm sure our listeners will too. Thanks, Charles. We appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to the Rent Roll Radio Show brought to you by Crestworth Capital. We hope you enjoyed the show, and if you did, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating and review. You can also visit us at CrestworthCapital.com or RentRollRadio.com or follow us on Facebook at Rent Roll Radio or at Crestworth Capital. If you would like to reach us, feel free to shoot us an email at info at rentrollradio.com or sterling at crestwordcapital.com. We hope you come back next week to join us on some more of our journey. Until then, happy investing. <laughs>